Hello and welcome to Enlightened Empaths, your community for the spiritually awakened. Today we're going to be discussing how to discover and embrace your true calling with our guest Rick Jarrow. I first listened to the Ultimate Anti-Career Guide last year, and I've listened to it again at least twice this summer. Then I moved on to the Alchemy of Abundance and Creating the Work You Love, and finally I emailed Mr. Jarrow and basically begged him to be on our show. Rick is the pioneer of the anti-career movement. At age 19, he left Harvard University and traveled for seven years throughout Europe and India, which he recounts in his first book, In Search of the Sacred. In India, he became initiated into the yogic disciplines and meditational arts. At 26, he returned to the West to complete a doctoral program at Columbia University, where he received a PhD in Indian languages and literature. Currently, he teaches at Vassar and travels the world presenting workshops such as Creating the Work You Love and The Alchemy of Abundance, among others. His books include The Ultimate Anti-Career Guide, Creating the Work You Love, and The Advanced Manifestation Program. So welcome, welcome, welcome. We are so excited and honored to have you here. I have to start. So my oldest daughter just left for college. My second daughter's getting ready for the SAT and that whole college applying process. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, I could only imagine what it takes to get to Harvard. So I would love for you to start us off by taking us back to your 19-year-old self and the courage it took to walk away from that huge achievement. Well, you know, um, since I'm looking at it through uh, a lens of uh, decades, I don't see it as courage at all. I don't see it... I don't see it as anything other than what could have happened. That's just how I see it. Um, I feel that uh, every soul every in, the, in a human body has a destiny. And I, I see that that destiny is not the same thing as fate. Fate something you resign to, where destiny you step up and meet it. So maybe I did something like that. As I've, I've written a number of places, I think one of the things that can give us courage and vision is not necessarily a formal mentor. I don't know if one has to go in that direction, but connecting with somebody who perhaps has gone through the door that you're thinking of going through and seeing that possibility, I think, gives you the, the opening. In my case, uh, it was my meeting with um, Ramdas at Harvard that kind of opened that door for me to see what is possible. And interestingly enough, uh, in order to close the loop, it, it was very important for me a few years ago. I, I just said, I have to go and uh, connect with Ramdas again before one of us leaves. And I was very fortunate to get to see him in Hawaii. And once again, it was a situation where um, there had to be some type of, one of a better word, higher force at work that enabled me to get there and meet him. Long story short. Wow. What a, what a beautiful full circle moment. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Once again, listeners, this is why you need pen and paper. Because just even how you describe the difference between fate and destiny, I love that. Fate is something you're resigned to. And Destiny is something you rise up to and meet. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Throughout your, your work on your website and in your book, you bring in a lot of different philosophies, <clears throat> excuse me, and practices. 
And there was one quote that I read that absolutely touched my heart because you said, this is true abundance, to cower before no one and no thing, to honor the life we've been given and to dare to open to our fullness. Mm. And when I read that, it seemed so indicative of what people are struggling with right now. And, and our community are empaths, highly sensitive people, and, and you know, trying to find out what is my where is my path taking me? Where am I going? How do I step into this and step away from the the either self-imposed, societally imposed restrictions and just do what I want to do and and raise my vibration? Yeah, uh, yeah. Mm. And and I think you at one one part you had talked about there are seven major passages we all go through. And if you could talk about that a little bit, that would be fantastic. You have to give me the first one because I don't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's about the connections with the planetary and how each one impacts the different parts of our oh, lives oh, and seven-year uh, yeah. cycles. And Yeah, I did that. It, it, that was a piece. Um, I'm still doing it, actually, because um, it speaks to people. I, 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 I use the planetary cycles as more than metaphors, as kind of, again, doorways into understanding perhaps where I am and what I'm going through and how to, uh, how can I make the best out of it? Because I was thinking about this when, uh, this morning actually, when I was, you know, envisioning what this podcast might be like. And and I was, I was just noticing like how situations have changed, you know, in society, not just since I started out, but, you know, every few years. And um, Hilda Charlton, one of my great mentors, used to have this, her, her definition of alignment was being in the right place at the right time. So if you know or you can sense or work with that if you're in a Saturn cycle, it's, it's about consolidation. It's not about expansion. And if you're in the 84-year Uranian cycle, it's about busting out, breaking loose, and, and so on and so forth. And this is true for the planet as well as individuals. Um, I think the, the really important cycles are the ones that are metaphorically related to outer planets. So um, uh, one way of looking, I look at it is um, if you go into a hospital and just observe, a hospital only functions if specific people are playing specific role roles so in any hospital if you look hard enough and are lucky enough you usually find at least one usually more angels could be a nurse could be a secretary but it's like they're planted there just to give hopeless people hope and that if you know if you're currently thinking about being employed as an angel that's like that that's the neptune cycle and the Pluto cycle, which some people feel we're at, and I don't personally, is when you realize that things have gotten so irrevocably damaged that you have to break the whole thing apart and start over. Uh, the Iranian cycles in your life are cycles when you are really ready to step out and be in front of the line. And the Saturn cycle, okay, consolidate what you've done, you know, step back for a while and uh, and gain your strength. So again, the, the basic idea behind all this is flowing with the stream and not struggling against it. 
That's beautiful because it, it exemplifies our interconnectedness with, with the earth energy, with the planetary energy, but also with each other as humanity. Yeah, yeah. That's fabulous. Thank you. One of the things we get from our listeners all the time is this feeling of, well, it's kind of a spectrum. A lot of our listeners are saying to us, we want to do work that's meaningful. We want to live our passion. We also want to pay our mortgage every month. Right. And then we have another set of listeners who have reached that echelon of success and all the, the labels and accolades that go along with it. And yet they say, I feel like an imposter. Like I'm not really meant to be this successful. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's so much that you're talking about. That's so, you know, we can spend days on it. So I don't even know where to begin. Well, uh, I have a place I wanted to begin. If okay, you don't good. Mind. Yeah, yeah, please. So you wrote, if you don't have a passion, you have symptoms. Right. That just really spoke to me because... That is so true. You said you might have headaches or feel bored at work. So unpack this. Where are you bored in your work? What do you hate about your job? So exactly. Could, could yeah. you talk to those people who are on that side of the spectrum that are just clocking into work, paying their bills, coming home and doing it all over again the next day? And, and they're coming to us saying, I want so much more out of life, but I don't know what I'm passionate about. I don't know what I want. Yeah, yeah. Um I guess I have to take myself to task here a little bit because, you know, I, when I wrote Creating the Work You Love, I was in considerably different consciousness in that I was thinking of meaningful work entirely as an individual process. And in hindsight, it's not. You know, it, it depends on family, society, you know, the weather. Um so it's not so much and this idea like passion it 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 gets too easily skewed toward like the individual so instead of the question of like where's my passion or what's my passion i think a a more productive inquiry is something like where and when do i feel fully alive now maybe two sides of the same coin i'm not sure but what makes it happen is that becomes the first commitment. Now you can do a perfect quadratic, whatever, calculus equation, but if the first calculation is wrong, the whole thing is useless. And the first calculation that we've been conditioned to believe is I have to become somebody as opposed to I already am somebody. And that's what I call abundance. And that's where it all begins. The willingness to live the life you've been given, not strive to be, try to be somebody else. And to fully embrace um, yourself and your world and let the work flow out of that. Um, most of us go out to look for work because we're afraid of starving or not having, which is these are real fears. They're, they're not just illusions. They're coming from millions of years of human and animal conditioning. But the Eastern teachings, for example, tell us that the human life is an opportunity to break out of that cycle. So I think the first commitment is to your aliveness and your joy. And the faith is that the appropriate livelihood grows out of that 
Now, that's a lot different. That's I'm not saying committing to, you know, I want to play the gong on Thursdays, you know, in the basement. Um, there is a give and take, but it's the commitment to what makes me fully alive. Yeah, that's so important. And just finding those moments, I think, in each day where you feel fully alive, whatever that moment might be without judging it, you know. I used to write a column called Earth Angels where I would just find local people who were doing, you know, nice things. Mm. And this one man I interviewed, I'll never forget, he was fourth generation mail service carrier. Mm. And mm. he had gotten a scholarship to college and, you know, he was a very, very smart man, but he, he spent his life delivering the mail. Yeah. And he said, I couldn't do anything more because I was afraid of crossing a class line and oh. my family wouldn't understand me. Right. Right. When I met him, he was retired and he spent his days building birdhouses. Wow. And he drove all over the Southeast, nailing these birdhouses throughout the woods so they could have homes. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, no matter where we go or what we do in life, we're going to find a way to explore our passion. That that's interesting. Um, there's a there's been a, a for a long time it's been out a really interesting book um, by I think his name is Stephen Hyde, called The Gift, and it's an anthropological study of basically work in different cultures and uh, he makes a distinction between gift cultures and utilitarian cultures such as ours, but kind of riffing on that I got this sense that. Um, and, and experience, you know, working with so many people, that it's not an either-or situation. For some people, doing the one thing they love from day one and making money from it is great, and it's a way to go. But for other people, that becomes a death trap. Whereas for some people, um, rendering onto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and then taking the time to do your art or your own thing uh, that can work just as well or even better in some on some occasions. So it's an I see it as an individual alignment process. But your first commitment has to be to your your joy, your truth, your abundance, and not your fear that what's going to happen to me if I don't toe the line, so to speak. I absolutely love that, and and also in your book. You and this, I I actually giggled when I read it because you you made a comment about manifestation. Manifestation is not about uh, wishing, hoping, praying, but right. knowing how to produce what right. you need to act to actualize your dreams in the physical world. Yeah. And I feel like we can read that, we can you know watch the videos, we can go to the workshops, but until we can internalize that, and you. you if you could talk about manifestation for a bit, because you explain it from such a different light. And I think that would help a lot of our listeners who are trying so hard to, to bring into their lives and step into their authenticity and truth, but they're a little hung up on how do I do that? How do I allow myself to step up into that? Well, I, I'll, I'll, I, thank you. It's, it's a great question. And I'll begin with an anecdote that taught me a lot, which is, um, one decades ago, I was in India visiting um, the great yogi Ram Surat Kumar, who lived in Tiruvannamalai, Ramana Maharshi's town. And I'd gone to the temple before I went to visit him. And sometimes if you go to a temple in India and you give donation, they give you a garland back that's been offered to the deity. 
So I had this garland and I kind of thoughtlessly stuffed it in my bag. And I went to see the yogi with a list of about 10 questions. Things like, is there fate or free will? Is the world going to survive? And uh, I, I came there with my list of questions. And the only thing he wanted to know is what's in the bag? What's in the bag? What's in the bag? <laughs> and I realized, oh my God, you know, if I can't even respect this flower garland, how can I deal with the bigger questions? Mm-hmm. So manifestation, I find works from the micro level um how you clean up the kitchen you know how you is when my when my son was six years old he asked it was sunday morning i walked in it was late he had gotten up finally and i said hey um oshan do you think you should make your bed already and he looked at me turned around he said well if it's just going to get unmade again why should i make it <laughs> and um <laughs> That's a really good question. I mean, uh, there there are some people in certain cultures they really kind of live that way. But that's, you know, why should you do anything? And um, aside from the fact that you're forced to by the laws of nature. So I think manifestation begins in the the micro by doing the little things. And then the, the, the yin side is paying attention and the yang side is honoring the attention that if something or someone speaks to you um you go for it um you don't stay in a circumst you know circumscribed around fear or ideas of who i am uh there was a beautiful book uh, written many years ago um called the magus of strovelos the extraordinary world of a spiritual healer about this spiritual healer who lived in cyprus uh, kyriakos markides wrote it and Lots of people read that book, uh, I don't know, 80s, 90s, but one particular person I know, he read that book and he was so moved, he said, I'm going to find him. And he was like on the next plane to Cyprus. And that's manifestation. It's you pay attention to what affects you and then you move on it. And that to me, that's what makes things happen when those two things, the yin and the yang will, are working together. You start micro see what attracts your attention and then really uh respond to it um i didn't i didn't um move into my life thinking about you know writing a book creating work you love or doing anti-career guide I, you know they never even thought about that um i was working with people and i noticed everybody i worked with had a voc- like seemingly vocational issue and it really impacted me and so then I, you, know, you follow that impact that's a lot different than than saying, oh, I think I would like to have this. Mm-hmm. You see, when you say, I think I would like to have this, you know, that's it, you know the imagination can take you places, but it, it doesn't hit the core. So sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And then when it does work, you find out it's not what you really wanted anyway. But when it's from your core, like this, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm willing to bet my life on this. Like it's that important then that moves things and people into action. And as I've mentioned in a few places, it is, it is the strength of your commitment that brings in the allies, the beings who are karmically contracted to help you. Um, so that's probably a good place to stop and see what you have to say about it. Very cool. Thank you. I think that's perfect. Now, all of this leads me to my big question I have for you. So I was not raised in a home with unconditional love. I was raised with, you'd get good grades, you make your bed, you know, you will get love. 
even even I was mentioning to you before we recorded I'm taking care of my parents and I brought dinner to my mom last night and she said, What do I owe you for the meal? Wow. Oh I was my. like, wow. Mom, I cooked you a meal. You I was raised in this whole thing of, you know, there's always an equal exchange of give and take. And right. Right. so all of that has led me to be not a workaholic because I feel I have a pretty good balance. But I do have this compulsion always that I have to be producing. I have to be doing. Yeah, that, that's a really good one. To feel yeah. worthwhile or, or that I'm yeah. being the light and being of, of service. Yeah. And yet you wrote the most powerful thing you can do to extend your career is nothing. Right. <laughs> I just want you to know, I wrote that down and it's hanging up on my bathroom mirror. <laughs> you know, um, the late great, in my opinion, uh, I consider him a mentor, James Hillman, who wrote his book, The Soul's Code. Um, the whole book is an argument against the belief that family is destiny. Uh, family and conditioning are certainly what we're born into and they're parts of our destiny, but there's another part of us. Um, Hillman would refer back to the Greek daimon, the guardian spirit that brings us to the people and places we need to grow into our fullness. And my experience is most of us don't get that from our families. It's kind of impossible. Where it comes from is often the mentor. And uh, the mentor can come in many different forms, but it's someone or you know, that recognizes something in you that your family could not. And that opens a door for you. And that's why initiating adults are so important it's so important in this country in this world that we have women and men who are enough you know into themselves that they can initiate others into these possibilities i um had no one in my family who wrote books like that wasn't on their radar and when i came back from uh india and wound up going to college just to see what it would be like um, this English teacher wrote on one of my papers, she wrote on the bottom and she said, you have at least three books in you, start writing. Wow. That's a mentor. That opened the door for me. Uh, now, and, and that's what I mean by, you know, okay, I got the mess, you know, she gave me the message, but I had, to, I had to take it to heart and do something about it. But I say to people, uh, the great question is, um, to break out of the conditioning is who inspires you and can you invent some cool ways to hang out with them uh doesn't matter who they are when they lived what they do if they inspire you there's some kind of karmic link that can empower you um so you know in, in other cultures they literally have you know initiating gurus who give you new names like symbolic of a new birth um the other way to go, which is interesting, there's another way to work this, which is you go backward. Uh, instead of looking ahead for a mentor, you can go backward into your family history. And sometimes you'll find someone two, three generations back who did something that actually makes sense to you. And that kind of reestablishes a link. I think that's really important. You write about that in your chapter on second chakra work right, about right. calling on your ancestors and 
and right. finding stories, anything that that can inspire you yeah. and and leaning into them for support. Yeah. Now, I have a funny story about that. So I, I did that a, a long time ago. My dad's grandmother got on the boat to come here from Ireland with six children. And mm. her husband stepped off the boat to literally get a pack of cigarettes and never came back. Wow. Wow. So she came to America alone with six wow. kids. The oldest was my grandfather, who was 12. Wow. And, and she opened up a candy store in Brooklyn. Mm. So mm. for years, whenever I would be just unsure or nervous or needed strength, I'd call on that great grandmother and say, you know, if you came to America alone and did it, you, you, <laughs> you've got to help me. Yeah. So I was telling my dad that story about a decade ago, and he was like, oh, well, you know, my grandfather actually met her back in America 10 years later, and she took him back. (laughs) Where in Brooklyn? You know, I can't remember. It was called Washington Candies, I think. So it's got to be, I I need to find it. The candy store is no longer there, but my dad has a picture of it. Mm. And I thought, she took him back? How could she? That ruined my whole <laughs> independent spirit woman. But I still call on her because she still did it. And I think that's that's a good point. And you mentioned in your book, even if these family members weren't loving and supportive of you, on some karmic level, they do love you and support you and want the best for you. And and I truly believe that's that's you absolutely know, correct. I've, I've, I've recently had... Um incredible experience of this because as I told you I think before we started my mother recently passed and um, being being part of that process being able to be deeply in that process with her especially the couple of weeks after she died I realized I experienced this this light being loving compassionate aspect of my mother that i had not really experienced in the same way on earth maybe the last couple of years and um at first i was taking myself to task you know why couldn't you see this why did you get fooled by the personality because because the personality by definition is a mask that we fall for um so to be able to look and see the the light i mean it's a cliche but when you feel it and see it that no matter what anyone's done and more importantly no matter what you've done no matter what you thought in an instant that can completely transfigure you know paul on the way to damascus you know um and and that that uh it, it challenges the notion that I have to work hard and I have to do this, I have to do that. It's, it's flipping the vibrational switch to a different frequency. And often that happens through trauma, loss, and love. They have opportunities there. Yes, there's, there's gifts to be found there. You know, I had a powerful dream experience a couple of years ago. My mom, you know, and I have a very difficult, interesting relationship. And I <laughs> and I had this dream and she and I were sitting outside at this cafe, this ocean was behind us and she was holding my hands and you know, she's not a hand holder, she's not a hugger in real life. And in the dream she's holding my hands and she said, How's this working for you, Samantha? Wow. And I said, wow. It's it's working and she said, When you asked me to come as your mother and be a true bitch, 
She said, I agreed because I knew it would help you and teach you the strength your soul is yearning to learn. Yeah. And she said, but I didn't know it would be so hard for me. Wow. wow. And I thought, oh, my gosh. So what you just said about the personality being yeah. a mask, I think that's so true. And I'm really glad you had that gift of feeling your mom's love and light, you yeah. know, right at the end and beyond. That's that's beautiful. That incredible gift. Yeah. Um and 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 it it brings something up for me which i think we miss in the hyper individualized cultures we've created which is that manifestation abundance meaningful work these are by and large community issues they're not just individual issues you know if you want a, a new product someone out there has to be interested in it or your new project or or whatever which is why one of the three big career questions I always ask somebody is who is your community or what communities are you a part of? That's how work was early on created in the United States. Immigrants came over, their relatives were here and got them a job in the garment district, on the railroad, wherever. You know, you're, that's what the community did for you. And, and um, the meaning was not so so much in the work itself, but in how you did it and who you did it with and what were the, all the relationships going on. And I have said on more than one occasion that I would rather sweep a floor in a place whose mission I believed in than be a CEO of Murder Incorporated, you know? And um, I think it's, if you don't believe in the people you're working with or for, it's a misalignment and it's, it's going to come back to bite you. I've seen it many times. Uh, so the alignment is, is, is getting with the right people who can, you know, you can each help each other with difficulties as well as with uh, insight. You know, it's all part of the package as far as I can see. Uh, community is essential. People who inspire you is essential. And, um, you know, it, it, it pains me to say this, but you know, the mission statement of the United States, which we still haven't lived up to, but the mission statement is life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, which is like this amazing situation, amazing vision where you have the right and the responsibility to develop your own relationship with spirit. Um, and, and if you abdicate that, then it's easy to be colonized by the corporate world and the you know, all the other worlds. Um, That's so powerful and true. And along that, that note, one of the things that I truly find more and more when I work with people, people want to feel that passion for their life, not only their career, but they want to live in a place of joy. They want to have something that they feel like they're making a difference. And that's been intensifying with you know, I, I want to make the most of my time left on the on the planet. Point me in the right direction. What do you want me to do? And I think one of the things people get so hung up on is I'm too old or I'm too poor or I'm too, I'm in the wrong part of the country. But you give some tips in your book about how to step away from that and really focus because I I really in my soul believe if you have a passion and a joy, if you if you want to write and no one reads it, you're still going to write. If you're, if you have a song to sing and no one, and you're not performing on a stage, but you're still gonna, you're gonna express that. So finding that passion, and it doesn't have to be over the top huge, but finding that, having what the the 
the ethic to say, I can't let this not come into fruition. And then how can I be of service or how can I help? Whether it's on an individual or societal or, or a global level, I really think that's kind of the key and, and the direction you take in your book with stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would, my, my, my process has me to step back one step before the passion because I think too many people misinterpret passion as what do I really want? Mm-hmm. And that puts all the heavy responsibility, the burden on me. You know, this little point of light among seven and a half billion other points of light. Whereas if we begin with receiving every day as a gift, you know, people want joy, people want, of course, because it's such a gift to be on this planet and to breathe this air and to see the sun up every morning. I heard it, I read somewhere that after some, I don't know the exact event in his life, but the writer Ernest Hemingway decided that for the rest of his life, every morning he would be up to see the sunrise. You receive a gift like that and then everything flowers. You know, the passion happens, everything happens. And I would, I would argue that if you have a desire to write, there's somebody who needs to read it. You may not see it, you may not know it. Emily Dickinson put her stuff in a little box but there were people who needed to read that. So if there's something that's moving you, it means the world needs it. And I, I believe I said, you said the key word to me, which is it's the passion or that energy. It remains locked in ego and frustration until it's offered in service. And when you offer it in service, when you say to yourself, to the universe, how can I serve? Then the avenue finds itself and it doesn't matter the scale it's the right scale that that particular service needs to be so receiving the gift out of the gift comes the desire this is how i want to say thank you and then how can i serve with it uh i I see that as an unbeatable combination and just to just to look at some second chakra stuff for a second I, i believe that one reason so many do not receive every day as a gift is because we're operating so deeply on the pain body as a culture and we're not but we're still not willing to look and see where how all this happened so we keep running and running and running producing 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 and not looking at some of the basic things like what is my relationship to the land i'm standing on perfect a little snippet for that is years and years ago I used to help my father on the lobster boat and we'd go out and every once in a while he'd just stop and he'd say don't ever forget to appreciate what a beautiful day it is and he'd put some point something out on the horizon or he'd say look at the way the way that wave is and it just gave me such a deep appreciation for nature and presence and I think right now with the polarity in the world we're all that's a key key gift we can give ourselves is to be present it's tricky you know it it just as an interesting footnote someone who had a very similar story to yours was ralph nader oh yeah his parents would have him go to the store and they come come back with the groceries and how much did this cost how much did this cost and then his mother would say how much does the air you breathe cost (laughs) and just getting into that you know that gift and and you mentioned the polarity that's happening 
I, I honestly, I don't know. Like, I hope we haven't run off the cliff already. But I, I feel that the challenge of this moment is it, it's more important to be kind than to be right. Exactly. Tell me if you guys agree with this. My goal has never been to be happy because I think that's a, a fleeting emotion. And so I do try to find the gift in each day. But I also try to find the gift in the painful moments of each day as well. Yeah. And you wrote about depression. You said that depression is something that leads us to abundance. Yes. And you, you talked yeah. about prosagnation and how, as a culture, we're so trained to just tamp that down. You know, my grandfather, the one who was 12 on that boat and had mm -hmm. to help support his family, this is his words of wisdom to me. He said, if anyone asks you how you are, tell them you're doing great no matter what, because no one really gives a damn. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. But I think that we have been taught as a culture to just kind of dampen down all the negative emotions and only put on the mask that's happy and joyful and bright and up. Mm -hmm. But you say, don't do that. You know, feel the feelings, feel the depression, the sadness, the anxiety of what's going on in the world of what's going on within you, the angst, because there's a message there. Yeah. Well, you know, America's great, first great depth psychologist, William James, spoke early on, I think 1910, I don't know the exact date, about two different types of people. And he called them the sick soul and the healthy soul. And this was not a value judgment. This was like a style observation that some people style like he said, like Walt Whitman is just, you know, everything's happy and I'm, you know, and happy go lucky. And then his six soul example was Leo Tolstoy, you know, with the, with the weight of the world on their shoulders. And uh, William James' point was that each of these types, ha ha you know, needs to be true to their experience. And some people by nature need to go through hell to get through heaven. Um, and it's necessary it's important it's a deepening of wisdom and um i guess the uh a, a very succinct way to put it would be uh the title of one of payment children's books uh the wisdom of no escape what uh whatever your situation is there's no escape and i've seen it both ways i've seen i've worked with a gentleman who he was born in what we would now call extreme privilege he never had to work and so he was his whole life, what should I do? What should I do? And it took him a long time to kind of break out of that and find something that really um, lit him up. He wound up um, touring uh, hurricane sites and getting the driftwood and making furniture out of them. Uh, and it, it evolved into quite a business. Uh, so whatever you're given, uh, my feeling is, my experience is, you need to fully embrace it to get its gift, uh, whether that's the sweet cup or the bitter cup, uh, that depends on circumstances which are probably beyond our control. But yes, the, the, the cultural um, disconnect that says um, you should be happy while the world is burning uh, does not make second, third chakras happily aligned. No, and it doesn't lead to authentic choices either. No. 
so maybe the issue is uh, rewiring or reworking this word or this sense happiness that happiness is derivative it, it 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 just comes when you're in your right place at your right time and um, um, in the old days uh, old days meaning I think it's the 80s when I sat with Hilda Charlton and St. John the Divine's Cathedral in New York. It was a time in history where it was very fashionable um, to speak out against your parents, you know, not to like your parents. And she, uh, Hilda would often have someone come up in front of 300 people and start just emoting and going on and on about what their parents did to them and they did this, this, that, and the other thing. And Hilda would wait until they were completely exhausted. And then she would turn to them and say, okay, okay, kid, can you see how you grew through that? And, and that becomes, you know, that becomes the insight. So um, there's a beautiful, I think it's a Rumi poem about the sheikh and the disciple who are walking through the desert. And, and the sheikh says, you know, I know you're just thinking about figs and water and don't worry, we're coming to an oasis pretty soon and you'll get your figs, you'll get your water. It says, but the, the ones who are really you know, in deep with the beloved, uh, they often starve. He said, but don't worry, it's not going to be you. <laughs> so it's not that we look for suffering, uh, but it is inevitable. And part of our soul making is how deeply we can process that and be with that and see how it um, <clears throat> polishes us into something shiny. And I'm not romanticizing it, but it's there. So... Um, and to be present with it, to not ignore it. Really present, yeah. Um, but I think there's a there's a, a process about being present with it, and that is having the presence slash abundance to be with it without falling prey to the reactions that come in the mind and the emotions. Um, the reactive nature is going to keep going like a fan, even when you pull the plug out. And that reactive nature likes to blame people and be nasty and upset. But it's, it's not, when you, when you see through it, it's not you, it's the conditioning. So you can watch that. Uh, th those reactions are not the depth of the situation. Um, the late Bernie Glassman, who I brought to Vassar at one point, um, who used to initiate this Zen sitting at Auschwitz, you know, talk about a challenge. And I remember reading uh, a narrative of one woman who sat there for a couple of weeks and, you know, going through all kinds of reactions and horror stories. And she said, toward the end, I realized, I felt in my heart what suffering the guards there were going through to have to to have to divorce your humanity to such a degree and she actually she could feel compassion for them that's the presence not staying in the reaction of you're a nazi you're a murderer you're a racist you're this you're that we love to label people and i would argue that label is a form of reaction that gets you stuck that's that's a powerful story. I uh, to to reach that level of compassion, it's it's a little beyond me at this moment. But that's that's amazing. Yeah, it is. It really is. But what we all can do, I feel, and I feel th at this time, it's the most important thing I believe is to really work not to get caught up in labeling people. 
you know, whatever, you label them as right-wing, left-wing, anti-vaxxer, pro-this, pro, you know, these are not, it's a way of dehumanizing someone. Whenever you label someone, you're literally not seeing them. You're not connecting with them. You're just building your own wall of um, ego narrative. And um, the more labels we can let go of, the more light that's going to come in. And it will label, it will enable you to peel off the layers you may have subconsciously placed on yourself. Yeah. Which are uh, so limiting. And we all have them. Yes. But we all have them, but at least we can understand they're labels that I've inherited or you know, glommed onto me and not necessarily me. You know, all of this reminds me of another story you tell in your books that I listened to. You wrote that one workshop student said, sure, sure, when one door closes, another one opens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the other part of it. There's <laughs> a long hallway between That's those right. doors. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And yeah, and we're all, I think I, I argue like as a culture, we're right now in that hallway. And, you know, what can be born out of this? Um, and, you know, I don't know if you don't mind a story yeah. about labels and about this. Um, in my formative years, I'll keep the names out of it. I went to a, a retreat center where uh, most of the people in this retreat center were very young. Like, I think the oldest person was 22. And uh, and this is no disrespect. They were from the Midwest so they kind of didn't have certain exposures, you know. So there was I was rooming with this guy um, who he, he'd never been to the East Coast or the West Coast, and he he asked me in all sincerity, you know, no negativity. He said, "Do Jews really have horns?" <laughs> and I said, "As far as I know, I don't think so." So then that night, I'm going back to the bunk where we're bunking, and all of a sudden, like the sky opens up. And I'm experiencing myself standing in the middle of ancient Greece. And I said, oh my goodness. And I said, well, I better shut up about this because this kid who's rooming with me, like he's not going to you know, resonate with this at all. So I went back, went to sleep. In the morning we got up, he looks at me and he says to me, he says, did you ever feel that you were in ancient Greece? Oh. And he had had the same experience that I did. At the same time, yeah. Wow. And uh, and and but there was a label in me, you know. I saw, I had a, a filter in me in such a way that I couldn't imagine that he could have that kind of experience. Of course not. Wow, that is. So. What do you do? You think you guys had like a karmic connection in in a in a way in that moment? Well, I'm I'm sure we did. Otherwise, I had we wind up together, you know. Yeah. Um, but also, um, I, when these kind of things happen, um, I do my best to receive their gift and to speculate as little as possible because who knows, you know, <laughs> I don't have to know, but I appreciate the fact that we are brought together with people for reasons that we cannot often consciously fathom. Sometimes these people are our own children or parents. This is the first level, like to work this out. Doesn't Jesus say something about, you know, before you put your gift on the altar, um, you know, make sure things are okay with your brother, you know, and your sister. Um, this is like the real work. Like we've been taught, if you if you're successful in the world, but a cruel person at home, it's okay. 
And I don't think that's okay anymore. And I think a lot of people are understanding that who we are is one. We're not one person at work and another person at home. It all, you know, the, the, the same soul essence radiates everywhere. Yeah, we're all so complex and we need to understand that and see everybody with all of their their multi layers. Yeah. I feel like I have a good window into that because I'm not very political. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. And yet people always make assumptions about me. Right. And and so they tend to say things to me that I don't think they would otherwise say. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like so and it's and so I see beyond what they're presenting to me. Yeah, I had a I had a guy come to work on my house and I don't know, he just made some assumptions about who I was, I guess, and and was saying some pretty negative stuff about political things going on in the news. And I just listened. But then then he moved on to talking about his children and how much he loves his children and how he's taking care of his dad. And and I just thought, you know, Samantha, don't label him. Don't judge him. Like, we're all doing the best we can. You know, like your friend said, we're all just walking each other home. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Indeed, he did. Indeed, he did. You know, another thing you talk about a lot is something you call the Baskin-Robbins syndrome. Right. Too many choices. Too many choices, yeah. I remember I had a, a teacher in high school, and she had a Russian exchange student. And this is uh, 1989, so it was right before, you know, communism and everything fell. And so he came to her house for the for the semester, and the first thing she did was bring him to our big mall. Right. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> She said that they were at the top of the escalator and he just fell to his knees in tears mm-hmm. because he was overwhelmed by the choices. Yeah. yeah. That story always stayed with me. And and I feel like today we too have so many choices. Gone is the 30-year career where you get the gold watch and the you know 401k benefits package. We're told you'll probably change careers every eight to 10 years or change marriages every eight to 10 years. There's just choices all around us. Right. Right. What do people do with that? How do do you think that's second chakra work, or do you think that's more fourth chakra work? I actually think it's like three, uh, two, three, but two, three, four. They all want to align, but I kind of feel with that. It's like we're on the frontier again. You know, we have to reinvent ways to live, and instead of having um, wild animals out there threatening us, we have all these potentials that are, you know. On one hand, they're great distractions, and on the other hand, some of them might be helpful. So how do you distinguish between what is really there for you and what is a distraction? And I I see that as a function of our digestive system. And we digest food and decide what the body needs to keep, but we can do the same thing with information. And if you're gonna have strong self-esteem, strong abundance, strong purpose, you need to have a strong digestive fire that can say, okay, that's really cool, but it's not something I need to give my attention to because my attention is my greatest capital asset. It's the one thing that is mine. And do I want my attention splayed in all directions and controlled by algorithms from this place or that place? So I, I say that the third chakra is where you make the commitment to your truth and to cultivate your attention instead of selling it out to whomever. Uh, that's That, I think, uh, is the work. Because, you know, if you want to, 
you could live on very little, stay home and channel surf for the rest of your life. Um, there's that much distraction out there. And it's almost an externalization of the discursive mind itself. Uh, the mind, or like as they like to say in India, the monkey mind goes swinging from tree to tree, from thought to thought, from object to object, from possibility to possibility. But in the end, is nowhere. So the third chakra challenge is this, this very great phrase for me, right now in my life, what's important now? And can I commit to it? And when I commit to that, I'm doing my greatest service to humanity because I'm going to have something to give, something to work with. Exactly what we all need to hear right now. And one thing that I've noticed, again, talking with people in different cultures, countries, parts of the U.S., that there is a, a sense of unity that's never been experienced on the planet before. And being the eternal optimist or optimistic realist or whatever we want to label it, I think that that kindness that you spoke of earlier, if we add in compassion and empathy, that's going to be the key to get on the other side of all of this and really be able to experience something that has never really happened on the planet before. It's pretty uh, exciting. Yeah, and, and it's a, it's going to be like a fight to the finish, the race to the finish line. Uh, that's how I feel about it, and I, I'm totally there with you. Um, and I've had this experience myself because I've worked in a lot of different countries, um, and and I find that there is um, a world culture, you know, underneath mm-hmm. all the stuff, and and it's it's much more open and much more accepting and you know, much more diverse. And um, yeah, I, I think right now, uh, the, the most important way I can see of helping that alignment is is recommitting to, to the Mother Earth, to, to living on this planet um, in very visceral ways, you know, whether it's growing food, whether it's you know, having good materials around you, whether it's not destroying, you know, things that don't have to be destroyed. It seems little, but, you know, people are doing this all over the world. Causes a ripple effect. Anything that each of us can do to raise our vibration and help someone else raise theirs. Yeah, and even if it doesn't, you know, um, my Hilda Charlton, we had, in the old days, we had our own pizza shop. This is how we kept our sangha alive. Um and we made, you know, this is way, way back. We made brown rice knishes and carrot juice and whole wheat pizza. And um, so we had this um, nice little business on Broadway in the middle of Manhattan. And Hilda would sometimes go out on the street and pick up cigarette butts. And I was once there on the street watching her. She picked up about 20 cigarette butts. And I, I basically said, I said, Hilda, what good is that going to do? There are like thousands of them on the ground. You know, what good is, are you doing picking up 20 cigarette butts? And she, she looked up at me, she said, kid, she said, I'm not picking them up in time. I'm picking them up in eternity. And I'm still working on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but I got, I, I, I got enough of it to see that, that it's not necessarily about a three-dimensional cause and effect. It's about at any time you do something with that level of compassion, you're bringing the next dimension in. Mm-hmm. And you're bringing a dimension that is going to make it possible for more and more people to step through. 
It's like that famous starfish story, you know, where the guy says, well, it makes a difference to that one. Yeah, yeah. And that's what matters. I think if we look at history, all good things have come out of bad things. You know, like out of the Revolutionary War, we got this great country. Out of the Civil War, we ended slavery. And if we didn't have the Great Depression, we wouldn't have these social systems in place. Welfare, Medicare, none of that would have existed without the pain of the Great Depression. And yeah, this, so this is following the symptoms, and usually because we are not very sensitive, when this we have to wait till the symptoms get really bad before we start doing something. But the the more you can catch symptoms uh, early, the more you can work on them without having to create a crisis to resolve something. But it all starts within, and I think that's what the message if I could be so presumptive, of your work is about, that you know you have to cultivate all of that within you first. Uh, what, what do you mean by that exactly within well, you? Well, I feel like you can't just go out into the world and be of service without first going inside and understanding how you can be of service to yourself, how you can honor yourself, your worth, your authenticity. I see, okay. I mean, right now, at this point for me, I, I see them kind of as non-different, within or without. Um, it, to me, it's the same work. What the, what's important is the quality of the vibration. So if I pick up some trash with a high vibration, like I'm, I'm putting things back together in the cosmic plan, that to me is, is non-different than if I'm sitting on my meditation cushion picking something out of my psyche and putting it in another place. I see the whole thing as the same, the same work. Um, well, that's deep. That's, I, I, know, I want to get to that place where I can see that too. That's what Ram Karat Surat Kumar was showing me with the garland. You know, it, that was a big teaching for me. He said, you know, that garland is as important as, is it, I had the, my first question was, is there fate or free will? And he said, like, how you handle that garland as equal weight. And that was, whoa, that was amazing. That really is. Wow. Okay. So this has given me even more to think about than all. <laughs> <laughs> we so appreciate your time. I'm, I really can't express in words how much this means to me having you on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank both of you. It's great work that you're doing. This, this, this needs to be done. Um, and um, I'm happy to be of service. So thank you for thinking of me. Thank you. And guys, listen to his voice. Is it not heavenly? If you go to rickjero.com, you can download all of his meditations, all of his books. It's, I just can't speak enough about how life-changing your work has been for me. And I know any of our listeners who haven't encountered your work will feel the same way. So thank you so, so, so much for coming on the show. And to everyone listening, Please remember, as always, to show up, do great work, and share your light. Thank you, Samantha. Thank you, Denise. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. you.